Uh, Psalm 49, the psalmist shares uh, with his readers, and here is a divine message of wisdom set to music. And much like Solomon's wisdom given to us in Ecclesiastes, uh, the psalmist wrestles with the question of life, death, and justice. And the claim by the psalmist here is, is that the wisdom is found in the supreme question of life, of what is the problem of life? What is the problem of life? What, how can we answer that? And so, here as we begin Psalm 49, it reads, For the choir director, a, a psalm of the sons of Korah, in verse 1, Hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Now, friends, the, the psalmist is open up saying, Here, listen to me, my congregation, my, my people. And who is he speaking to? Well, essentially, he's talking to all humanity, the inhabitants of all the world, both low and high. In other words, there's, there's no distinction. It, it is for all, no matter your status on earth. And as we begin to go further into the psalm, you'll see that there, why that distinction is actually present. Look at verse 3. Why uh, my mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be my understand or shall be understanding i will incline my ear to a proverb i will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre uh, the psalmist is is essentially saying this is a uh, he's going to be setting this to music he's playing a um a harp most likely and um just like anything else as we as we teach much much like uh, when we teach children uh, Bible verses or anything else, we, we set those things to music to help remember those things. And here he's wanting to emphasize um, this, is, this is for all men, possibly even just uh, note, noting that uh, in, in the world we teach oftentimes uh, there are lessons to be learned and things to be taught, and we often do that through the form of music. So here the psalmist is, is again utilizing that tool. And then verse 5, here's a fresh consideration of, of really an old question. He starts out, why? Why should I fear in the days of adversity? When the iniquity of my foes surrounds me, even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. Friends, this, um, uh, this psalm, uh, the psalmist is saying that there's there's fear because there's some sort of adversity that is coming against him in this time. His enemies are present, and they surround him. And yet, who are these enemies? These enemies are those that are trusting in, in their wealth. And we'll later read um, those that are resting in the pomp, uh, the, the circumstances of their own riches, the abundance of that, he even says in verse 6. Those who trust in their wealth 
And as we read the psalm, you're, you're going to see that this psalm is, is, is answering the question of, of, of really highlighting what is man to do with death? What is man to do with death? And, and as he goes into looking at wealth and riches, can wealth and riches be the answer to that death? Let's go ahead and read a little bit further, and we'll come back to these verses. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live or forever, live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling place to all generations. Though they call lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. Well, here he is, he is considering that question of old, of, of what do we do with death? Because it is inevitable. Uh, 100% of the time, man is what? Going to die. Man is going to die. He has an eternal end, uh, a destination. There is, there is a, an appointed time for man to die. And so what does he do with that? Um, we are always in this, in this world, in this age, trying to look for answers to that question of what do I do with death? How do I answer that? What am I looking towards for hope and for help? And many men, many people, they look to wealth, prosperity, the hopes of this world. Now, um, understand this is not uh, speaking against being wealthy. It is not speaking against having worldly or earthly riches. However, it's, it's where do you put your hope and your trust when it comes to the end? Uh, with the full revelation of the Scriptures, we could go to Mark chapter 8, verse 36, where Jesus clearly says, For what does it profit a man? that he would gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. What can a man give in return for his soul? And obviously we understand that Christ is, uh, was teaching us that there is nothing that we could give in, in lieu of that. And so the, the wicked here oftentimes uh, seen in the Psalms as well as in Ecclesiastes, uh, the Solomon who is, who is asking uh, he was, who was declaring this wisdom of the wicked and how they seem to prosper. Well, here they even show that they find refuge in their great wealth and prosperity. Their great wealth and prosperity. So there is even a correlation of that, that it is the wicked man who finds hope in his prosperity. No man, verse 7 no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. You cannot buy yourself or anyone out of dying. This is a hopeless truth or false truth. It is a, is a, it is a fallacy. There's, there's no, we've heard this term recently, self-atonement available. Not for you or for anyone else. And friends, this, is, uh, this, all, this may seem like a hopeless and dire situation, and yet the, the psalmist will go on to, to give hope eventually. Verse 8, For the redemption of his soul is costly, uh, 
and he should cease trying forever. It is, it is folly for him to try. That he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. How much money, how much prosperity is spent in, in trying to avoid the end of man's life uh, today. Um, every, um, every commercial on TV is trying to give us uh, some special cream or some special um, uh, injection that will get rid of the pains and the sufferings, the maladies of this day. And yet, uh, ultimately, there is only a temporary hope in that. There's, there's no supreme uh, hope in those things. And yet man is, is trying to live on forever and ever without undergoing decay. Death is certain, friends. It is, it is a fate that we cannot escape. Aren't you guys encouraged so far this morning? <laughs> this is the way we want to open up a Tuesday morning. Death is certain. Sorry, guys. Verse 10, For he sees that even wise men die. The stupid and the senseless alike, they perish and leave their wealth to others. It doesn't matter the, the status of man. You could be the, the wealthiest individual. You could be the smartest individual, the wisest of men. There is still that ultimate reality. And they leave their wealth to others. Verse 11, their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. Putting their names over the columns of their homes and, and out at the gates of their homes and, and decreeing that this is, this is their, theirs and it will remain forever in eternity. Um, even we are given... Examples of that in history where men would want to bury their own treasures, sometimes even their own wives, with them upon their death. Um, I often, uh, as I was reading that, I was thinking of an old story of my mom's um, back when she was a child. And uh, this just looks at the folly of, of what we try to do to save things. And um, she and her sisters had one day come, up, come upon this cat, which they they thought was theirs, and the cat was dead, and they were very saddened by, the, by their, their dead cat, and they, they grieved, and they had this big service, and they buried the cat, and, and they sang songs, and uh, they were just crying and crying, but before they buried their cat, they threw, it was like right after Easter or something, they threw all their candy, because uh, that was precious to them, and they threw all their candy into the, the grave with their cat, I know, it's silly. But uh, they did that, and they buried the cat, and they grieved for a couple of days, only for about the third day, ironically. Um, this, this cat comes running up the road, and whose cat was it? It was their cat. And, uh, you know, just the, the, the foolishness of man, the, the thinking that we're doing this thing. Uh, we're trying to, uh, to do something great. And uh, it just made me think of that. I thought I would share it with you. That was worth your time coming here. Oh, that's a good... I, 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 I'll have to ask her that. Yeah. Good job, Brother Steve. Yeah. <laughs> Verse 12. But man in his pomp, he will not endure. He may stand and beat his breast and say, look at me. 
but he is like the beast that will perish. There is promise the end. But verse 13, this is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words. Selah. Their life, life path is essentially folly. They are fools in grain. Those that, that follow them will only approve, but act in similar fashion. They keep similar company. Friends, this is, uh, this is the habit of man. We, we put ourselves around others that, that we think alike and want to encourage us in our own ways. Oftentimes, if we're living in sin or we're living in a way of the world, we want to have ourselves around others that would encourage us and say, we're, we're doing all right. But that's not how we are to live. We, we put ourselves around brothers that encourage us and confront us, confront us when we're living in folly. Verse 14, as, as sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. The upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be for, the, for Sheol to consume so that they have no habitation. But God, this is one of those massive transitions and much like Ephesians, but God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. For he will receive me, Selah. The redemption which was impossible with men is possible with God. Verse 16. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself and Though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generations of his fathers. They will never see the light. And he ends book ending with that same, same ending. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Friends, I hope your understanding is, is much different this morning. It is not like the fools that rest in their wealth and in their treasures, but ultimately, where is true wisdom found? And it is found in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is a sober reminder of, of the folly of man that we, we strive in, in our own power and, and abilities often to try and atone for our own wickedness. Uh, we, we live in ways putting our trust and hope in, in the things of man rather than in the things that are eternal, which are of God. I pray for these men, Lord, even this morning, that that is not where their hope is found. But their, their hope and their pomp, the, the glory is, is given to you and the work that you have done miraculously in their lives. I pray for our brother, uh, Dr. Mark Hager, that you would bless him with the ability to, to speak clearly, to bring forth the, the treasures that are rich, that do bring life, that, that give us uh, a hope for an ending that is sure and that is steadfast, one that is, that is rich in glory, ultimately to be given to you. We give thanks to you in Christ's name. Amen.
to page two of the book. Let me say only a fool would throw his candy in a hole on a dead cat. So um, that's what I heard. Okay, page two. We're all the way into page two of the book. And uh, we're in number two. So sometimes it goes slow. Sometimes it'll move on. You'll see when the pastor moves through this thing. He'll cover a lot of ground. Other times we get stuck somewhere. And, uh, and so today we're doing the same thing here. We're trying to figure out what to do. Um, and the next section here is on leadership. You can see in verse or number two there, he says, have a right perspective of leadership. I thought we should camp out on something that I call this kind of leadership 1.0, just a kind of an overview of that. But again, they're going to cover quite a bit of the leadership uh, principles that we need to know about later on when we talk about qualifications of elders. And uh, you'll get the whole picture uh, in the book. The book is amazing to take you through everything you're going to need to know as a leader in your home, as a leader in the church, and to make a difference. Um, and I just think it's a beautiful package that we have. It takes four or five years to get through it, but how we're starting over again. Now, this is leadership under this um, title of having biblical literacy. Um, you know, that's where he started with this. Now he's kind of building on it. Now let's have a right perspective of, of leadership. I like this, um, what MacArthur said. He said, a leader is not someone who is consumed with his own success or best interests, his own best interests. A true leader is someone who demonstrates to everyone around him that their interests are what most occupy his heart. No competent leader is going to be anxious to impress people with his credentials because leadership is directly related to character. Uh, turn your Bibles to Titus 2. Titus 2, 2, that we're going to cover today. And then we'll break down some of these points in leadership to get to 3. Titus 2, 2. Some of these points that we're talking about, again, was in the context of an elder, but then he transitions here, says older men could mean the elders there, could be that term. Otherwise, we're understanding when we connect the dots, we're doing everything we can do for the glory of God. And so as in our leadership, we want to have those character qualities. We want to increase in developing our leadership because it's really the foundation for everything we need, especially in the home, the church, in the world. It should be uh, transforming for any of us in any place we're serving. And he says this here, he goes in verse 2, he says, no, verse 1 he says, but for you as teach, teach according to what is sound doctrine. Older men, you are to be sober-minded. This is what Dr. MacArthur is talking about, character qualities. He's not talking about flamboyant, charismatic orators. He's not talking about you know, some of the flashy leadership we see today. We're not saying all the professional leaders and uh, high-profile leaders, if you will, in the church. We're not talking about that. He's saying you've got to be serious-minded or sober-minded, seriousness. Dignified, that means you need to be composed. Um, self-controlled, that means you control your emotions and you can control self. You're not having constant meltdowns. Your emotions are not getting away from you. The self-control is part of the importance of being a mature leader. 
You can think about that. You're setting the tone. You're setting the pace in the home for the same thing. If you expect there to be more uh, consistency in the home in some areas, then you have to be consistent in your own emotions and your own, um, and your own attitudes as well. He says, be sound in faith. These are characteristics of good leadership. Unwavering. It means you're not always vacillating. I, I believe this today, and I like this idea today, and I like this preacher today. And they're always vacillating. And what they're doing is it's ideas. You're not sticking with the Scripture. The sound in faith, unwavering. It says, in love. He always sticks that in there for men because we have sometimes have a problem with that. And that's really a sacrificial other-centeredness. That's agape love. It's, it's, it's amazing because it's always about someone else. He says, and even in steadfastness, this devout loving kindness and mercy, faithfulness that men have. See, all the character qualities. I found that in character qualities, it's interesting that every challenge you'll face in good leadership will always be on the inside of you. Every time something goes wrong in the home, every time something goes wrong in your life, the first place you look is on the inside of you. You're actually seeing if you're being true to the faith, if you're, you know, you're examining yourself to see if you're in the faith, that Second Corinthians passage. But you're always examining your heart because you know it's the, really the issue that you have control over. It's the issue that you need to get in, in line because you may not be seeing something right, doing something right. Whatever it is, I start with me. It's the biggest challenge. Good leadership starts with with the man, with leaders. And so if you're, um, he goes on to say, you know, proper perspective of leadership and biblical perspective of leadership. Uh, if you're a Christian man, I brought in here that this morning, it doesn't matter where you're serving. It could be a businessman, it could be wherever, your home, wherever it is, you know, leadership is an issue. It's an issue. And it's, it's no doubt, there's no accident that he starts this whole study with questioning our leadership. It's important. We always have a blame-shifting kind of a perspective. If my wife would just do this, if my kids would just do that. But it, the idea is that is your leadership is setting the tone and the pace for the home. And so it's important that we, have, we focus on this leadership. I'll talk a little bit more about that. But A, if you notice on your book, 2A, he says uh, we must avoid viewing leadership as organization, event planning, and mobilizing large groups of people. What comes to my mind, and from being in the 90s, a pastor in the 90s, was John Maxwell. I don't know if anybody has John Maxwell books in here. You're on camera. Just raise your hand. Busted. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, you know, the 21 irrefutable laws of leadership. The pastor I worked for, man, he was just eating alive with that. You know, everything was about that. And, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, some of them are probably good things we could do. Some are a little inspiring or motivating, but um, it's not really where we're supposed to be. I, I hope that we can kind of flesh that out because here's what happens. We come in sort of tainted with the toxins of the world understanding of leadership. We think we have to be these, this high-profile guy. We have to be charismatic. We have to have this greater influence and some of these strong leadership, natural leadership stuff. And, uh, and so I want you to be kind of purged of that thinking and to think in terms of what the Bible's saying about leadership because that needs to translate in your home, which brings stability and peace in the home when you're leading with, with confidence in your home. 
So, I looked it up and I found out that there's all kinds of approaches to leadership. It's kind of weird. But what not to do, right? 15,000 books listed on leadership. 15,000. Everybody's a, a leader. I didn't see the Bible listed anywhere on that list. But the biggest thing I noticed, I guess the greatest testimony uh, for us to avoid is really the secular view. Of this They call it the SNL, the strong natural leader. And even the strong natural leader, those are these Fortune 500 guys, I found out that many of these guys, like all the big dogs who are, uh, you know, Facebook kid, and uh, I call him a kid, but that man, uh, you got, you know, Zuckerberg, you got all the guys, right? All the ones, they, they don't even have higher education. And I found out that the, the secular people don't really gravitate towards people with higher education. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that it's not the answer. So the more education I get, the greater I'll go up into the com- company or the faster I'll grow in the church. It's not true. It's just not, it's not the, the way it works. In fact, if you just think about some of our leaders we have today, you know, like even with Trump, only has a bachelor's degree. Some people have bachelor's degrees, you know, and that's been a great leader, a motivator. Some of these billionaires, most of the billionaires have undergrad or less in education. So even in the church, um, it's not necessary to have uh, that. If, if you have the good languages, if you have the MDiv, to me is, is the strongest, I think that's the strongest middle point. And then academia comes in, then you're going to slowly start slipping down and and income, uh, because you're going to be teaching and doing more sacrificial work. But it, to lead the church is not required with education. They have a, a list of attributes for these leaders. And I thought some of these churches, I noticed that some of these uh, weak evangelical churches are in the search committees are looking for these people. This is what not to do, but some of them apply, okay? They say they're looking for, they want visionary by nature. And these are strong, natural leaders, they call them. They want action-oriented people, movers and shakers, courageous, energetic, objective-oriented rather than people-oriented. They want to get the job done. It sounds like more like uh, my captain was in the military. They're egocentric. And everything is about them and their leadership and their plans. They're intolerant for people who can't produce but they also think they're indispensable. Most people just can't get along with them. I'll tell you how important this is, especially if you're studying to get in the the pastorate. There's a reality of what you think the church is doing because you've been so isolated by being in a bubble of true biblical purity. And then you get out and you find out in the real world that the average church is about 100 people strong. That's it. Also, you find out that there's a search committee that very, they don't have biblical literacy. And so search committees are looking for people, and they're looking for this list and what they see on TV, and they like that dynamic, and maybe this is what we need. And so they're praying for somebody that can, can inspire them and move them along when all along it's about the Bible inspiring people, and it's God moving them along. But I went to take a quick experience I have as I was done in my church plant. Everything was going fine. I mean, normal challenges of church plant. And um, in that particular denomination, early in the 90s, was uh, a denomination they had supervisors. And you had your district supervisor over you, and then you had a general supervisor over that area. 
And it was kind of like the Methodists, but not exactly. But they would say, he called me up and said, hey, we, uh, we have a church open in northern Missouri, and we'd like for you to consider that church. I said, uh, excuse me, I'm doing a church plan. I have I got lots of people here, and they're, they're new, and it's, they're crazy, and I, they need me. I've got to keep working. It's like, just check it out for me. And uh, so I did, and I said, well, there's a lot of Baptist people in this church, and they're, they like the Bible, so we thought maybe you could help them, you know, like you can't help them. You know, I was like really shocked. Anyway, but I came out there, and I, I actually preached for them a couple times, and then I um, met with the search committee, which was a lot of the board members, and I was shocked, actually. They interviewed me, they wanted to know about my education, and how they, what, I, what my vision and plan for, you know, taking the church somewhere and how the skills I have and all these things like that. And when it was all over with, I said, well, I said, you know, I'm really not leaning towards, you know, taking, you know, taking this position and, and helping the church here. And they like, why not? I mean, in, actually, this church was very affluent church, had five doctors in there, very giving. The guy that left had left a quarter of a million dollars in the checking account. I mean, the building was paid off, brand new facilities. It was beautiful. But I said, you know, my problem is you, it's, it's not the answers you should be looking for. And I, I'm really concerned about the questions you ask. You never ask me about, do I pray with my wife? Tell me about my prayer life. You never ask me about, ever been disciplined in the church or ever gone through, you know, what, is my, what are my temptations in life? You never talk about that. Never talk about my, my study life. You never ask me about the important things like my marriage. How's my marriage? You didn't ask me about that. Are my children, are they under control? What, what's going on with that? You never, you never asked me. I said, you asked the wrong questions. So that comes from out of the overflow of your own heart. And so I'm not the guy that you need for success. I'll be honest with you. I just let it go. And we were kind, and they were sulking a little bit. And Anyway, the whole bunch of them called me and said, hey, we repented. We are repenting. We're wrong. We're just willing to do whatever. And as it turned out, we did move up there and take that church. Um, but it shows you that what people's mentality for leadership is about. It's always that flamboyant, kind of strong, um, charismatic leadership that can do something. You know, we're expecting the church to grow but on the back of your gifts and skills. It's all secular. It's all self-promotion. It's not really good. So the problem is that many, many churches are built on these same premise. A lot of these young guys come out there, they, they just have a lot of energy, they want to go for it, but they're not really trusting God to do the work. God to do the work. The Word of God's doing the work of God, and they're not focused on that. So it, it gets out of whack. Now, we're doing the same thing in our homes. We want our wives to follow us. We want our kids to follow us and obey us, but we're not doing the, the work uh, in the home, biblically either, and we're going to talk more about that in a second. So a lot of these churches are crashing and burning. They want the go-getters. They're crashing and burning. So the real biblical solution here, uh, I think, is is that the primary responsibility, according to the Scripture here, is accomplishing God's goals through God's people, not just doing the work yourself. That's one element of that. Let's look at Ephesians 4, if you will turn your Bible. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Now, how many people have the Spirit Study Bible today? Raise your hand. Anybody have the Spirit Study Bible? Raise your hand. 
okay, I was just trying to catch someone. That's all. That's good. I didn't want to have to report you. Did you have one? Okay, good answer. Good answer. Who would like to read that? Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 with authority. Just 2.13. So, that's the idea, and I think is what's interesting. Um, our pastors here do that quite well. So I see some young folks, people who are well-equipped, who want to be in ministry really bad. Talk to me a lot about it. And you give them ministry responsibilities, and some of our pastors here understand who I'm talking about, or several people, but they couldn't build a team if their life depended on it. They're not focused on training people are helping people, what they're focused on is they're not focused on building a team. They're really saying, what can I control? What can I do? How can I serve you? Which is good. I, I appreciate that. But there's never a team idea. There's never a people. I guarantee you wouldn't have 250 people in Boundless without a good leadership understanding of investing in people and sharing ministry as, as Rich and Clay do. You just wouldn't have it. It just wouldn't happen. And so the idea behind this is that you're not trying to control everything. In fact, I would say that whatever you're, if you're one of those kind of pastors that's got to be in control of everything because you know you can do it better than others, you're probably only be able to grow as much as you can control. That's it. So you have to be careful that you have to build, build a team. You have to work. That's part of good leadership. Now, I realize that we're doing that same thing in the home, too, where we're helping that, but I just want to make one point about this is really critical. Like, you know, are you sharing in the small group ministry, or do you have to do all the prayer, all the Bible study, all the talking? Good leadership is, is sharing ministry and using people's gifts and letting people involve themselves in ministry. Now I realize you have to manage that. You can't you can't completely give up all your responsibilities in that, but good leadership involves other people. It says that in the scripture. So remember this, that the church is not the same as the business world. We should, we should understand that, I'm preaching to the choir here. We shouldn't have a CEO mentality to leadership. Spiritual leadership is not just being the boss in the home or boss at work. Your, your spiritual leadership is, is, is earned through your love and your, your kindness and through replicating Jesus Christ in the home. And so I think that we have to stop trying to be culturally successful and start focused on being biblically faithful. I think that's important. So here's some main attributes spiritual leaders need to be Christ-centered. It's kindness, compassion, patience. The normal things we looked at for, for good leadership. And so I think um, number two is what I put on here was that spiritual leadership in the home is a test case for leadership in the church. First Timothy, Timothy 3 4 and 5. Somebody can look at that one for me. 1 Timothy 3, 4 and 5. Might not be much of what I'm telling you here, but it's a good review to figure out where our basis for leadership is. Because we get home and we have one expectation. We go to church, we have another one. And I think where our leadership should be 
a consistent understanding of, of us being a servant leaders like Jesus Christ. What does it say? First Timothy three, four and five. Good. Read up, Steve. Amen. So, um, MacArthur said it's obvious. The reason church leaders must have well-managed homes is that if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? I mean, it's the same principle. So, we have to be able to confront. We have to be able to have to be able to shepherd our own family, our own wives. We have to be able to invest in them and gently bring people around. We're not forcing people. We're not taskmasters here. So we, we need to learn that principle. See, so you can see automatically that we're not secular leaders. And it's um, important that elders or men of God should be leading their families, evangelizing those in the family, making the gospel number one. We're not just trusting that our children's pastor is going to evangelize our kids. We're evangelizing, we're sharing the gospel. We're helping them in their sanctification. We help in their practical theology and how are some ways we can obey. We're talking, we're leading, we're, we're, we're confident in the Scripture, which is going to sort of exude kind of a, another confidence in them. They're going to start following, going to be following because of the characters, because of the love. Again, we're not, uh, we're not trying to establish a culture of, this, of, this, of the country, of the uh, secular world. It's just not going to work. So we have to also sort of kind of present a culture of resolving conflict of our own. Um, Some of the best leaders in the country are not afraid to involve themselves in resolving conflict. You don't need to know the skills in it, but you have to be willing to establish those things. I can tell you a lot, I see a lot of people in counseling where they're avoiding all these things because they're they're going to open, I don't want to open up that can of worms, or I don't want to open up that wound. And they don't, they keep, and then, but they have to live with all these critical spirits and all these problems that are happening in their home, which bleed over into the church. They have to build unity. That means you protect relationships at the same time. How do you do that? It's a pretty, pretty important task. Pretty important task that how you approach these things, you're protecting your relationship and the unity in here by, by dealing with things early instead so they fester into a problem. Early on, you see problems. You start you engaging early on and have conversations around the scripture so, you, so you're not festering a large, you're not doing an operation, you're not having a large womb later on that's going to cause problems. So it's early detection to places where there's disunity and problems. You maintain love, and gentleness, and humility in your leadership. If you do, you're going to have respect. People are going to follow you because they love you and respect you. And you won't compromise. If you're uncompromising, I guarantee you they like that. They want a particular person that stands in their faith, but uncompromising, but it's done with gentleness. It's done with gentleness. Also, another culture uh, problem is people are not serving each other. It's self-serving. I can't help that my wife gives me a cup of coffee every morning. So no matter what time I get up, she runs down first and gets the coffee made. So by the time I get out of the shower, what do I mean? She's got, I don't care if it's four, three, Five, I mean, she's a boomer. She doesn't know any better. 
But I tell her, I said, that's not going to work uh, for a lot because my own son back there makes fun of me all the time. But he's like, hey, you're just a boomer. Your wife, you know, actually serves you. So, <laughs> but that's sin. I know. I understand that. And so, but you have to have some, you have to engage in some of these areas of leadership here. He gives us some more thoughts here. Um, it's a challenge in the home. I'm mean, telling you, you have to have good leadership in your home. So learn to shepherd your wife and train your children in the home. Learn to do that. That's a big task. If we take anything away from here today, that's what it's about. You're not bossing people around. You're not giving your opinions. You're not forcing your way around there. You're actually having conversations, drawing out where they're at. I, try, I like to figure out where they're at so I can connect with them with the Scripture and walk with them and understand it rather than expect them to be where I'm at. I'd rather know and ask questions. I'd rather, ask, I'd rather read the Scripture and see, is this where you're at? Well, what do you think about that? And then engage in a conversation. I'd say, no, you can't believe that because I don't believe it. No, you have to be gentle and kind and draw them into good leadership. That's the idea. And so leaders have dignity, which includes you know, courtesy, humility, competence. It's just that whole thing in um, Titus 1.6, not to be accused of rebellion, your, parent, your kids. So your children have to be trained as well. Be willing to say no. Don't be in fear. Be willing to say no. Be willing to, to discipline. Be willing to be rejected. I don't, like, I don't like my dad. I don't like that. Well, but you're doing your job and you have to be it with kindness. But it takes courage to do these things. Look at B on that page 2B. We must cling to the Scriptures. It's our foundation of biblical leadership. He says, meticulously and faithfully pass the Scriptures on to others. Again, this is the biblical literacy he's talking about. That's your job to be the Bible guy in the home. It's not really your wife's job to lead in the family with the Bible. It's great that she's doing that, but it, it should be under your leadership. You should be teaching the Bible. One of the things I do, and I did for this book that I wrote in, this whole book that I take notes when pastor was teaching, at the end of that thing, I would take a snapshot of my phone and I would send it to my wife, and that's what we would discuss when I got home. I tried to never you know, reach, read anything, study anything, get research on anything, find out any new news, learning something new. Um, we had a two-day conversation just on this um, self-atonement that Clay talked about. I mean, it was just a... It was a frenzy over that, and we talked about it and how it affected us and where we were at in our counseling. And I'm trying to train my family, not by saying, sit down, we're going to do a Bible study. I'm, I'm trying to say I'm helping inject ideas. I don't try to read or do anything that I don't have a conversation with my wife, and I did with my kids as well growing up. So you have to be meticulous about your faithfulness in the Scripture. Number two, Paul said, do not shrink back from declaring the wholeness purpose of God you must have courage in your faith. You don't shrink back. Things are wrong. You're not the one that should have the meltdown. You're not the one that should be angry. Things aren't going your way or losing control. God's in control, I promise. You just need to engage with the Scripture. You need to trust that the truth is doing the work of God. And that you engage in gentleness and kindness, but God is doing the work. And don't shrink back from that. Stand strong in that. Number three, he says here on that in the book, you must be able to pass on the gospel. 2 Timothy 1, 
You know, it's interesting that if you would query all these people or if you would just do a little survey, you'd find out that the average person that can't clearly even explain the gospel. They may understand, well, I know Jesus died for me. And, but they couldn't really clearly understand the, the, all the, the implications and the elements of, of the gospel. And so, but you expect your children to, or your wife to do that. I mean, think about that. If we were just, and, and just all the ones who are married, if I would just, we would just have a little time where all the elders would sit and talk to your wife, and what, what would they find out? What's her biblical literacy? What does she know about the gospel? What does she think about leadership? How is she handle submission her role in the family i mean it tells a lot about that because it's telling on you you're the one that's shaping that you're the one that's responsible to kind of you know shepherd her through those things guide her through that process you have to be courageous you also have to be gospel centered gospel centered also you must be able to refute error refute error do you know how to do that? Do you know enough of the doctrines of Scripture? Can you do that? When something's out of whack, somebody, your wife comes home, she's excited because she's got a Joyce Myers book, how are you going to engage? What are you going to say? Are you going to snatch it away and just throw it in the trash? No, nah, it's from the devil. No, I want to I know why you were intrigued by Joyce Myers. I'm, I'm going to have a great conversation with her. I'm going to read her with her. I'm going to share some Scripture. I don't have to worry about that. But, but my, if my wife did, she knows I would engage with her immediately. She knows I would, I would, I'm not going to run up there and knock it out of her hands like it's, like it's, some, uh, like it's a demonic thing. I'm going to engage, ask questions. When your wife is not thinking right, I, I try to engage with that. Why, why are you thinking this way? Tell me. I, you know, I'm not angry with you. Just talk to me. What's this about? You're always engaging because what I'm going to bring to her is the Scripture every time. And I'll say, sometimes, I don't even know what the, well, what does this mean? I don't know, let's sit down and find out. Next thing you know, I start going around and start asking the pastors. What do you think? What do you think? I'm not going to give up on it. You've got to be able to bring the Scripture. You should be able to be courageous, and you have to be able to refute error. No doubt. So you have to keep training, don't you? You have to know what heresy really is. Have you ever watched this video series by Phil Johnson? It's called... Uh, the five ancient heresies, man, unbelievable. I had maybe, we had a couple months of conversations over that and a lot of Bible study in my home. We wanted to know that because I didn't know Arianism was really a Jehovah's Witnesses remake. I mean, there's all kinds of good stuff. You, have, you just keep bringing it up and you keep using it. The MacArthur's um, Bible doctrine book, uh, we systematically went through that forever. I don't know how long it's taken us, but we've always picking out picking out something that we can, we choose something there that we can discuss over and try to learn from it and then put it into practice. You're in in charge of engaging with the Scripture in the home. That's good leadership. And so there are some tensions in leadership. I just want to give you those five things before we go to breakfast. Five things. First, before I do that, I want to ask some of the guys. um, I don't see his pastor, Jeff, here. Okay, I didn't want to throw him under the bus. Pastor Brody, uh, he's under the bus too. <laughs> Who? <laughs> Jacob. Okay, so I'm going to go to Pastor Rich then. <laughs> All right, so Rich, 
I asked you a question about, you know, what do you think is the most important thing that we need to know or what you've learned in your experience about leadership? Amen. It's good. No, it's good. Amen. That's good. Because it's just antithetical to what we believe in the world. I mean, the world is looking for men who are power-hungry, guys who are coming in and you know, organizing their home and, you know, directing. Um, and we're looking for servants like Christ. Yeah. How about uh, somebody else? How about Dave Miller? Dave, when you think about what is one thing, if you could say to anybody, that good leadership is? That's good. And humility is just everything for the Christian himself. If I could pigtail on that just a little bit, I would say, just could follow up, would say that you have to be confident in what you teach and what you know. You have to be, you know, bibliocentric. You have to be Bible. Everything's a scripture. But you have to be teachable. And humility is that part. You have to be teachable. You don't know everything. You're learning something all the time. And when you're open to the scriptures teaching you, you are... You don't have a high view yourself. Humility's working in your marriage. It's working. And you'll get a lot further in your marriage and your relationship. Solves a lot more problems with humility than you will with your trying to get your way. Amen. It's good for that. Good. Mark Shandorf, you've got a couple miles on you. What about leadership? You raise a family, got a wonderful wife. What's what's important to know about leadership? Good. And then when I have that, that free time, how do I spend that? And, and what are my thoughts? 
That's good, Mark. That's very good. Amen. So if you're learning a lot and it's not changing you a lot, it's just developing more pride. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, you're, what I mean, you're studying. It should be to help you be more humble, to have the good character, to deal with the issues of your own heart. So, yeah, our time. We talked about that last time, reflecting, pondering on the Scripture, time alone. I think that's a discipline where Pastor Brody, and we have such a high view of him, but he is a master at that. He's, you know, I got up at 3.30. I thought I'm going to try to get down in the cafeteria at the churchman's conference downstairs. Lights are barely on. And I, and I just jumped out, ran down there in my pajamas. And that wasn't too alarming. And I went downstairs and I got my Bible and I'm running around the corner and there's Pastor Brody already sitting there praying. I said, man, P, what are you doing, PV? And he's like, I was trying to pray until you came here. But, <laughs> yeah. But he's like, I mean, he's the only guy I know I can text at 3.30 in the morning. He'll text me right back. The dude is up praying, praying, journaling, studying. You've got to have a discipline because self is always trying to take over. Self is always trying to master, try to be the master of your life. And you fight that with the truth, the word of God. Here's five things uh, that I find their tension. Problem areas as a man. I want you to just listen to these things. One by one. Passiveness. Passiveness. Is a, is a, that is going to be a chink in the armor. And I call that the fear of man. Again, I hate to keep quoting him, but Clay does use that quite often, fear of man, because it's what it is. We're afraid to lose peace in the home. We're afraid to confront our wives. We're afraid it's going to cause conflict. We're afraid we're going to lose our kids. We're afraid our kids are not going to turn out to be Christians. We do all kinds of things in fear. The passive leader is really looking for trouble, a lot of trouble. You have to trust God. You're, you have to go back to the chink in your armor. You don't really trust God He's in charge. You don't really trust God that he's calling who he calls, he'll save. You don't really trust God that your job is to be faithful to them, not to, not to save them. You have to be careful. Number two, another tension, another problem, area, authoritative leadership authoritative leadership. Be careful with this. Very, very damaging. It demands a lot of others. It's a taskmaster kind of mentality. They're usually poor listeners. They're not understanding. Live with your wife in an understanding way. And when I become authoritative, I'm not very a good listener. And I'm harsh and heavy-handed. It's one of the dangers. You should be evaluating yourself, saying, this is me. And then you just take it to the Lord. And then you go to the Scripture and you make a plan, you say, at least you know when you step into that area where you need to confess them, what you need to change. Number three, unloving leadership. It sounds kind of normal, but we're not supposed to be that way. Loving really is, you, when if you're unloving, you're going to be harsh, critical. You're going to have a demeaning kind of personality or a disposition because you're going to be very self-focused. Unloving, unloving is dangerous. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's the one thing he told us to do. Definitely we have to do. Number four, defensiveness. Am I a defensive kind of leader? I'm always protecting myself. You know, because in the police department, you have always have a way to kind of protect yourself. Not physically, but I mean on paper. Okay, because so you have to justify the decisions you made. And you're always trying to defend yourself. You always get into that self-preservation. It's not good. It's not good leadership. I'm trusting God to protect me. Always wanting to protect yourself. Fear of failure. 
not willing to take chances or live by faith. Just own your sin, I say. You want to get out of that? Just own your sin. My wife has to say, boy, that was, what were you thinking when you did that? I know, sinful. That was terrible. Would you forgive me? And, you know, why would you say that? I was full of myself. I own my sin. I learned that I don't have to worry about it. I just keep owning it. Eventually, I get it. I go back to the scripture. I keep confessing it. And that's when you fail, you got confession. And you got to own your sin. You mean it. And the fifth one to me, I see is hypocritical. Hypocritical leadership. Strong expectations on others' obedience and your wife's submission, but you have a low expectation in your own obedience and your love. You resist accountability. You don't follow through. It's kind of a duplicitous kind of a thing. You know, you come, you have a, you have a spoken theology and a functional theology. We talked about that. And that's where hypocritical, and we're all hypocritical at some level. We're all going home and we're doing something that we wouldn't do in front of anybody else. It's really true. It's hard to be a leader, isn't it? I think sometimes it's easier to be a follower. Then I realize you deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me daily. That's what Christ says. So we want to be able to lead our families, the church. We want to have good, solid leadership. Starts with character. And so we need to be building character and a biblical literacy in our life. I know our pastor will be back next week. We'll, he'll start with applying the Word of God to life's hardest questions in number three. And we're looking forward to that. Father, we're thankful for our time together, my brothers in this room. This is a very difficult task to be a good leader. Very difficult, challenging task every day to, to live in such a way. Even our wives are considered weaker vessels. There's an out for them in some way that they're weaker. And so we pray that we won't take advantage of them. We pray that we'll be kind and loving, that we'll trust the Scripture above all things. Change us, shape us today for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.